We've come to the final week in our series on Hosea. I know some of you are glad that we're not 14 weeks and a 14-chapter book, but uh, final week. And uh, we've seen in, in these series of short films now, we've seen the culmination, the end, the last film in the series. And Gomer is expecting. Nobody knows for sure who the father is. And she reluctantly returns to Hosea. And nobody would blame him for walking away. Nobody would blame him for giving up, for rejecting her, but that's not what happens. She's welcomed, she's embraced, and the person who deserves to be left and forgotten is given mercy and given faithful love. And it's a beautiful story, a moving way to summarize and and really wrap up our, our study in Hosea. And as we conclude, we want to look this morning at just one more verse Just one final verse in Hosea, and it's perhaps the most uh, meaningful, the most interesting verse in the book, and so impactful, in fact, that Jesus himself quotes it twice, uh, which is probably an indication that uh, Jesus said it several times, and it's only written down twice. So it's an important verse, and it really gets to the very heart of God and the heart behind this whole book of Hosea. If you were going to try to summarize the book of Hosea in one verse, this might be that verse. And, and it's, it's a verse that's it's a little complicated. It's like a, a precious jewel and, and like a fine diamond. It's meant to be uh, examined and admired from different angles. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. We're going to journey through this verse by looking at it from a bunch of different angles. We're going to explore some different stories. And as we do that, we'll see this big idea from Hosea from a few different angles. So uh, here we go. Story number one comes from Jesus. And during his earthly ministry, Jesus was constantly shattering people's assumptions. In one moment recorded in the book of Matthew, Jesus calls a disciple from a really unlikely setting. He sees a tax collector and just to put some things in context for us, tax collectors were really the worst kind of people in ancient Israel. They were cheaters who turned on their own people, the Jews. In the ancient uh, Roman world, the job of tax collector, it wasn't an official position, it was, it was contracted. So a person would put in a bid and they would say, okay, I can guarantee you know, X amount of tax revenue from this district or from this area. And if they won that bid, then they were responsible to deliver that amount onto Rome, but they could collect whatever they wanted, and whatever they, else they collected, they could just put in their own pockets. And so, uh, so they were sellouts. They were getting rich off their own fellow Jews while working for the Roman oppressors. So nobody would expect Jesus, of all people, to have anything positive to say about tax collectors. But Jesus is in the business of shattering people's expectations. So when he sees the tax collector named Matthew, he calls on him. I mean, a, a tax collector of all people. He calls on him to be a disciple. And as Matthew is coming to know and understand Jesus, he hosts a party, a big dinner party for all of his friends. And so not only is Jesus willing to talk to one tax collector, he's willing to go into the lion's den and be surrounded by a whole house full of seedy and morally compromised people. What a terrible idea. At least that's what these Pharisees thought. This is what the story tells us. 
While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And interestingly, the disciples aren't the ones to answer that question, but Jesus himself responds. On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus tells them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And go and learn what this means. That was a a phrase, a common phrase that rabbis or teachers would use to get their student to think carefully about a particular passage of Scripture, a particular idea. And Jesus tells these people who should be expert teachers, go and learn what this means. They still have a lot to learn, and and perhaps we do too. Jesus has strong words of rebuke for the Pharisees, but he has mercy for the sellouts. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Story number two also comes from Jesus. Matthew's gospel records another interaction Jesus had with some Pharisees. And and the Pharisees, they're all about keeping the law, God's law. Their hearts are in the right place. In fact, part of being a Pharisee was creating extra barriers so you couldn't even accidentally break one of the laws. uh, So if the law says you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, then the Pharisees would create tons of regulations that made sure you didn't accidentally do some work on the Sabbath. They developed a whole system. And so so a big rule like working on the Sabbath, that was uh, what they called a father, a big rule. And underneath each father is a bunch of little rules they call descendants a little family of rules and guidelines. So, for example, uh, plowing on the Sabbath, that's a no-no. That's a father, because that's, you know, like farm work, plowing, right? Well, digging, like with a shovel, that's kind of like plowing, so that's a descendant. You better not even dig, you know? If you drag a chair through the dirt, that leaves a sort of a furrow, and that's kind of like plowing, and so you better not do that either. But if you had a chair on hard ground, you could drag that because it's not going to leave a mark, right? So you can already see, this is getting out of hand, all right? And this is one of, of so many rules. So, uh, but their hearts, again, their hearts are in the right place for the most part. Uh, here's another example. Another uh, father related to the Sabbath was, was carrying a load because that's work. You can't work on the Sabbath, right? But this rule has all kinds of descendants. If you put on an unnecessary garment, Well, that's kind of like carrying a load, so you better not do that. Uh, If you're a tailor, you have to leave your needle and thread at home because that's your work. You can't carry that around on the Sabbath. Or if you're a scribe, you can't carry your pen on the Sabbath. That's work. Uh, One matter that caused all kinds of discussion amongst ancient rabbis and Pharisees was what what could a person do if their home caught fire on the Sabbath? Because you can't pick stuff up and carry it out, that's against the the rules. But if you put on a piece of clothing one at a time, ran outside, take it off, you could run back in for another, you know, one at a time, you could could uh, shuffle things out of your house. I mean, people must have come from miles around to watch the house of a devout Jew burn to the ground to see how they would manage it. 
So these Pharisees, they have all these safeguards, all these descendants, so people wouldn't break the big laws, the fathers. And the rules centered around the Sabbath, they're especially complicated. But Jesus has a response for this too, and I bet you can guess what verse he might quote. Look at what the story says. At that time, Jesus was going through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. So they're breaking a descendant law by, by harvesting uh, the, on the Sabbath, even though they're just doing it one bite at a time, right? Well, Jesus answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which wasn't lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests working on Sabbath duty in the temple, they desecrate the Sabbath because they're working, and yet they're innocent. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here, talking about himself. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. So here's the same idea showing up again, but in a a slightly different context, uh, looking at the diamond from a slightly different angle. Jesus' disciples, they're walking through this grain field, and as they walk, they, they grab some grain, kind of break it open in their hand, eat it, and, uh, and they're hungry. They're walking through a field full of food. Why not, right? Well, these Pharisees observe it, and they criticize the disciples for working on the Sabbath, for harvesting. Obviously, these guys don't know what real work looks like because, you know, that's hardly work. But But they criticized Jesus and his disciples for breaking the law, and in response, Jesus quotes this verse from Hosea. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Story number three also comes from Jesus. This time, he doesn't quote the verse directly, but uh, I think the principle is there. Uh, Jesus has been teaching on a variety of topics, facing opposition from Pharisees at every turn. It's clear that their priorities are not the same as his. And as he's in the temple area, Mark 12 tells us this story. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, have the most important seats in the synagogue and places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for a show, they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Then Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So Jesus contrasts these these teachers of the law who follow all the rules and want everybody to know it. They make lengthy prayers. They, They show off the apparent blessings God has given them with their wealth and their fine clothing. But Jesus makes it clear that's not what God is after. And he points to what can only be described as the exact opposite as an example for all of us to consider this poor widow making her offering, doing what God asks her to do. The same kind of obedience that these teachers of the law and these Pharisees seem to have, only she gets it right. She's doing it from the heart. She's got something 
that they're all missing. Uh, you know, earlier in the morning in our video announcements, we talked about the idea of taking Trinity with you. You know, as you travel around this summer, you can stay connected to your faith family. You can stream our services on YouTube. Hello, YouTube. Uh, and uh, you can set up automatic giving, you know, automatically have it withdrawn from your account. Just don't do what one person did and accidentally check a 100% automatic withdrawal. He was surprised when he got his next pay stub and it was all here. <laughs> uh, this is good. It's great. Great things to be able to facilitate and for us who are busy, very helpful but, but we've got to be careful, not just about overgiving, but being careful that we don't fall into the kind of trap that these experts fell into, just going through the motions, missing the heart behind giving, for example. Because Jesus doesn't need our money. That's not why we give. Jesus wants our heart, as this poor widow demonstrates. That's what's important. Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice. So we've encountered this idea that God desires mercy, not sacrifice, now in three different ways. If it's a diamond, we've seen it shine from different angles, and we see it in Jesus' interaction with Pharisees related to eating with tax collectors and sinners. We see it in Jesus' reaction to these Pharisees that hold the Sabbath law higher in regards than real people and their real needs. And we see it every day here in Walla Walla when you just want to go get Froyo on a Saturday, but they're closed. So let's look at this verse in its own context. Uh, If you were here last week, you know we talked about Hosea chapter 6. We looked at the first few verses of that chapter And this very famous verse, the one we're looking at today, also comes from Hosea 6. It's chapter 6, verse 6, and here it is, the full verse. The Lord says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So what exactly is God saying here? Let's start with just a little context. In Hosea's time, the, the religious system of the day involved animal sacrifice. Uh, That was the Old Testament law that God himself established. When people sinned, they would go to the temple, they would offer a sacrifice to atone for their sins. And the idea is that the the animal would be a a stand-in for the person, so that the punishment the person deserved for their sin would, would fall onto the animal. The animal suffers, and the person receives mercy. So when a person sins, they, they recognize they've sinned, they've violated God's law, but God had established this system so that the person wouldn't have to receive all that punishment. The animal gets the punishment, and the person hopefully then would repent, would feel God's mercy, and then would go and, and stop sinning. But But here in Hosea's time, the system is really broken down. Apparently, people are are totally fine with sinning and letting these helpless animals take all the punishment. They they missed out on the the heart behind the whole system, the mercy peace. They lost sight of what God was really like. And so these people are over here, and they're cheating on their business practices, or they're yelling at their kids or their spouse, and they're living selfishly, putting themselves first, turning a blind eye to the poor and the oppressed. They're giving worship to all kinds of false gods, but hey, everything's fine. We'll just kill a couple of animals and clean the slate that way. Well, taking advantage of God, taking him for granted, not understanding anything about the heart of God. They're just going through the motions. Well, fortunately, 
for us, we've never done that. We've never taken God for granted. We've never lost sight of what God is really like and just gone about our business and lived however we want. Thankfully, we don't have that problem. Well, of course, we all are people in need of God's mercy. Amen. Amen. So this message from Hosea is just as timely for us as it was for them. We don't have animal sacrifice. Jesus himself was the lamb who was slain for the sins of the whole world. His death satisfies once and for all the punishment that our sins deserve. So we don't have the the challenge of animal sacrifice, but we do have the same heart challenges that they have. We have the same heart challenges as people in Hosea's time. Our hearts have been hardened to what God is really like. And we just want to live how we want and pay lip service to God. We know the right things to do, and sometimes we do them, but without the heart behind them. We'll, we'll go through the motions because we know we're supposed to be reading our Bibles, we're supposed to be praying, we're supposed to be talking to our neighbors about God, but our hearts are just not always in it. It's just a bunch of activity without the heart behind it. And we have the same heart problem that these Pharisees in Matthew 9 have. We can see other people's sins, other people's problems. We can get on Facebook and be all enraged about what other people are doing wrong, but we don't always see the things that we get wrong. We can't clearly see our own sin. But Jesus says, we're not the righteous ones. We're not the healthy ones. We're the sinners. We're the sick. We're the ones who are in need of a doctor. You know, at the beginning of the series in Hosea, we talked about who we are in in this story, in Hosea's story, the story of the prophet Hosea and his wife who is a prostitute. Well, we're not the righteous prophet. We're prostitutes, a whole church full of them. We have the same heart problem as the most rigid rule keepers, uh, these Pharisees in Matthew 12. We want to do what's right, but we place unnecessary burdens on ourselves or on others just going through the motions without the heart behind it. I was talking uh, just a couple of days ago to Nate Towner, our intern. You may or may not know, we have an intern. Nate uh, works at our student ministry, does great stuff. And uh, he and I were talking about, uh, about the idea of spiritual disciplines, uh, these practices that God wants us to be engaged in, things like prayer, things like Bible study, like fasting, practices that help us connect to the heart of God. And Nate's been talking a lot about this stuff and thinking a lot about it with some of our middle schoolers. And he said something so simple but so helpful. I, I just I can't wait to share it with you. Uh, you know, so often our attitude with these kinds of things, prayer, giving, all these sorts of things, they're the right things to be doing, but our attitude is like, okay, God, I did my part, so uh, I'll take those blessings now. Look, I've, I've read my Bible every day this week, so uh, now it's time for you to kind of take over and do all the hard work here, you know, and... And that's not how it works. God, uh, uh, Nate said, God is not a vending machine. We don't just make our deposits and then get good stuff out of it. Uh, that's not how God works. And he's absolutely right because God is concerned primarily with our hearts. And here in Hosea 6, he gets right to the heart of the matter. He wants us to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And God's not saying here he wants the people to do away with the idea of sacrifice. It was a key part of their worship and and ultimately something that points to what God wanted to do for them through Christ. So God's not saying don't do the things that are right. What he's saying is do the right things with the right heart. 
If you were here last week, we talked a little bit about the idea of, of parallelism, that uh, throughout the Bible, when two lines of poetry are next to each other, there's parallels, parallel ideas. And that's the case in this verse. Uh, look at the verse again. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So, so at the end of each line, there's parallels. Sacrifice, burnt offerings, they're the same. That's the system God created for his people to pay for their sins. The animals would be killed and then offered up as a burnt offering to God. And the verse is not saying don't do those things. He wants those things. They're the right things to be doing, but he wants them done with the right heart. So God doesn't desire empty ritual or empty rule following or just going through the motions. So what does God desire? Well, notice the parallel ideas here. God desires mercy and he desires acknowledgement. And that word that's translated acknowledgement, it doesn't mean acknowledgement like, uh, oh, there you are, God, I see you. I'll be over here doing whatever I want. It's, it's not like that. It's, it's understanding. It's really knowing what God is like, getting to the heart of God. And the parallel helps us understand what is at the heart of God. Acknowledgement is parallel to mercy. Mercy, that's what's at the heart of God. And that word, it's translated mercy. It's a beautiful word, a beautiful concept. It's it, woven all throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes it's translated as mercy, other times as, as faithful love or loyal love, these kinds of ideas. And that's what's at the heart of God. It's, it's this tender love for his people, a commitment, a love and mercy that's based on who God is. He's not going to give up the natural outflow of who he is. In fact, when God describes himself, he uses the very same word. It's, it's right at the heart of God. He says he's the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's the same word here in Hosea 6.6. 6. So just like we saw in the video this morning, Hosea welcomes his wife back home with that loyal love, with mercy. Not just doing the right thing, but doing it with the right heart. That's how God treats us. And that's how God wants us to reflect him and his unfailing love. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. An acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. God wants us to have a heart that's tender and not tight. Not firmly adhering to rules without living out the heart that's behind them. Not blindly going through the motions without putting our heart fully into what we're doing. So God is not saying to don't do the right things. He's saying do the right things with the right heart. And when God has our hearts, then our natural response, our natural reaction is to give our time to people as Jesus does to tax collectors, to give our money as the widow does in an amazing act of faith, and to give our resources, our love, and our mercy. These actions are not rote rules for us to follow, but they should be the natural outflow of a heart that reflects what God is really like. So as we wrap up our series in Hosea, let's take some time to ask ourselves, how can we reflect that heart of God today, this, this, this heart of mercy, of tender love, of faithful love in our world today? How can we do the right things with the right heart? What does this need to look like in our marriages? 
How does this kind of mercy show up in our families as we parent our children or grandchildren? How does it show up here in our faith family? How can we better reflect God in our workplaces, not being moral police the way the Pharisees seem to respond, but living in a way that that genuinely reflects God's love and mercy for everyone? And how can we live this way in our valley, loving the people of our valley in a way that cuts right to the heart of God? As you consider all those possible categories, let me just challenge us. Just pick one. Pick one area where you think maybe God is speaking to you, speaking to your heart, and consider that the change that God might have you make in that area that helps you reflect God with a more tender heart, not a tight heart. And I want to conclude with one final story, one more facet in this jewel that's at the heart of God. Again, a story that comes from the life of Jesus. He's not quoting the same verse, but I think the same idea is present in a way. This is the story. While Jesus was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, so here he is dining with another questionable character, another outcast. A woman came in with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. You know, because that's what everybody does when you come into a lot of money. You give it all away. Nobody, you don't spend it on yourself, right? They rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus wants us to do the right things with the right heart. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Let's pray. God, we can't help but be in awe of the mercy you've extended to us. Uh, We know the true condition of our hearts, even if we try really hard to hide it from other people, we know that, uh, that you know the truth about us, and yet you love us still, and we praise you for that. We pray that you would uh, speak to us through your word, guide us in the ways that you want us to show your love and your mercy to not just the people who are closest to us, but people who are all throughout our valley, who are desperate for the kind of unconditional love that only you can offer, the kind of mercy that only you can offer. Help us to be agents of that with hearts that are doing the right things with the right attitudes, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.